Natural MD Radio, your place to hear the whole truth on health and medicine for women and children and get the tools you need to take back your health naturally starting now. I'm Dr. Aviva Ram. Hi, everybody, and welcome to episode 101 of Natural MD Radio. Tonight, I'm so pleased to be talking with you about something that is near and dear to my heart, and that is the subject of natural medicine for children. And we're going to focus on a very specific topic that's relevant in the news right now and maybe relevant in your own community. But before that, I want to thank all of you who wrote in wonderful comments about the episode with Tara Foley. And as promised, Tara, who is the owner and founder of Folane is giving away a gift basket from Folane and we have a winner, Kaylina Spire. And she wrote, Natural MD Radio is among my favorite podcasts because the shows are relevant, actionable, and engaging. The interview with Tara Foley, founder of Folane, is a testament to the mission behind Natural MD Radio. I love how this show communicated the need to respect what we put on our bodies along with what we put in our bodies. Tara demonstrates her humanism and exemplifies how, although women are presented with daily challenges, they have the tools to overcome them. Thank you for sharing important messages to the world. Thank you, Kaylina, and thank all of you who listen and keep me inspired to do this show with all of your comments. So speaking of actionable and relevant, what we're going to talk about today is what I'm calling beyond the vaccinations debate, what to do if your child gets the measles or other common childhood symptoms. So we're hearing a lot about the measles in the news, again, due to outbreaks around the country. Most of the conversation, though, is focused on vaccinations. I'd really like to put that debate aside for the moment and focus on something else that's important to talk about, what you need to know about the measles and what you can do if your child contracts it, which can actually happen whether or not your child has been fully vaccinated or whether your neighbor's children were or weren't. This episode today, we're going to just cover measles 101. My hope is that if you're concerned, this will help you to feel more prepared. And if you're living in a community in which there currently is or often are measles outbreaks, You'll know how to tell if your child has the measles, what to do, when medical care is needed, and how you can best support your child's health medically and naturally. Knowing how to care for our children naturally is an art that was largely lost as the role of antibiotics began to reign supreme in the 1940s, and healing arts like herbal medicine were relegated to old wives' tales. And while, of course, there's a role for antibiotics, other medications, And in my opinion, even for vaccines, as someone who lived and practiced medicine in Haiti and saw diseases like diphtheria and who's worked in hospitals in the United States, caring for patients from Africa who had had polio as kids and now have limb deformities, I'm personally not opposed to the reasonable use of vaccinations for the most severe preventable diseases. There's no doubt, though, that antibiotics have been overused to the point of severe international severe crisis in antibiotic resistance so that many of our antibiotics no longer work for many of the infections our kids might face and we might face. And again, while I totally support appropriate vaccination use, 
I do have to question the safety of 31 shots for young children, and I'm really empathetic with parents who choose to make alternative decisions, and I, I really understand that. But we're not going to talk about that today. That's a conversation we can have another day, and a conversation I talk about in my book that I had published in 2000 called Vaccinations, A Thoughtful Parent's Guide. The important thing to remember for what we're talking about today, though, is that vaccinations don't prevent kids from getting common fevers, ear infections, sore throats, conjunctivitis, and other childhood symptoms, as we've seen when there are outbreaks of other illnesses in our communities. And while vaccinations can provide a tremendous amount of support and protection against what are called vaccine-preventable diseases like the measles, both vaccinated and unvaccinated kids can contract them. Often, conventional medicine has support only for kids with complications and severe cases. But for most kids, whether with common conditions like regular run-of-the-mill ear infections and coughs and colds, or what were once common conditions like the measles, which are now much more rare, conventional therapies are primarily pharmaceuticals like ibuprofen and Tylenol. And despite the opioid epidemic and numerous warnings to the contrary, Many pediatricians and emergency room doctors even give kids cough medicines containing opioids to this day. So I'm not just a concerned mom. I'm also an herbalist with 35 years of study and clinical experience in what's safe and what works for kids. I write the Yale curriculum in integrative pediatric medicine and am a Yale-trained MD, board certified in family medicine, which means I'm licensed to practice both full adult medicine, and full pediatrics. I've worked with thousands of families, parents, and children, and have been trained in the diagnosis and treatment of infectious diseases, including measles. So I know a little bit about supportive remedies that you might want to know. And when it comes to the measles or any other childhood illness, I really want you to have this information because I don't want you to go on a wild goose chase or colloidal silver chase or celery juice chase or anything else that isn't appropriate medical care when your child does need medical care. And I do want you to have the natural health information that you can rely on that really works and that's safe for kids if and when the rubber ever meets the road. Today, I'm going to talk a little bit about the measles. Given that there have been at most 800 measles cases in any given year, and that's like the outermost largest number in the last two decades, and more like 250 cases at most in most years, it's extremely unlikely, at least if you live in the U.S., that you'll ever see a measles case in your home or even in your town. But it's a condition which does get a lot of people worried and concerned, especially when we hear about outbreaks and also the measles is kind of interesting in that you can have fever, you can have ear infection, you can have conjunctivitis, sore throat, cough, rashes. So a lot of the other common symptoms that kids get are also symptoms of measles. So it's really helpful to know what the remedies are, not just for measles, but those remedies are applicable for kids when they're dealing with any of those other symptoms and conditions. So first, what is the measles? Well, it's a viral illness and a very contagious one. Like a number of childhood infections, measles has a seasonal cycle. Many of the different infections we see have seasonal cycles. You're familiar with that with flu. People mostly get it in the late fall into the early spring. 
the measles seasonal cycle is typically late winter and early spring. It's so contagious that it affects almost every susceptible person who gets exposed. Measles has been around seemingly forever. The written history of measles can be tracked back to the writings of the Persian physician Rhazes way back into the 10th century and even earlier to a Hebrew physician named Al-Yahudi. Rubiola, another name that's still used for the measles, first appeared in medical writings in the Middle Ages. While it was actually considered a minor disease, the term measles seems to have sprung from the Latin root for misery and possibly from the Dutch root mazel for pustule. The disease is caused by a spherical, single-stranded RNA virus that's actually weirdly closely related to the canine distemper virus. Measles is transmitted person to person through large respiratory droplets and by airborne routes, in other words, through coughing and sneezing. It doesn't require any physical contact with the person who had the measles or has it to pass it on or to contract it. Following exposure, about 90% of susceptible people will get sick with it to some degree or another. It's commonly spread in public places, that's what we saw with the outbreak a number of years ago at Disneyland, and can linger in the air for even several hours after an infected person has left that space. It's so contagious that if you're susceptible medically, it's recommended that you not even go into rooms where there have been people with suspected measles. And for anyone who does have measles or suspects they've been exposed, it's recommended that you avoid school or work from the fifth day to the 21st day after you were exposed because you might not know that you were exposed, but then you develop the symptoms somewhere between day five and day 21. So if you think you've been exposed and you don't know yet whether you have it, then it's recommended by day five to 21 after your exposure, you stay home to avoid infecting others. How do you know if you're susceptible? Well, if you've been fully vaccinated or had natural measles in the past, you're most likely immune, but you can't count on that 100%. Interestingly, there's a less common form of measles that occurs in people who are exposed but have previous immunity either from a natural measles infection or because they were vaccinated. So you can have incomplete immunity and, for example, the vaccination didn't fully take or you had a really mild case of the measles that didn't confer complete immunity. That kind of measles is similar to the other kind. It's the same viral infection, but it can have a longer incubation period. So it can take two to three weeks before you even notice that you have it. And it's usually much milder. And if you have it, you're much less likely to be contagious. So what does the full measles look like? Let's talk about that next. The measles is about a 10-day illness that's divided into four stages called the incubation period, the prodromal phase, the exanthem, exanthem just means rash, and recovery. And the 10 days is before the recovery starts. The incubation period lasts from, that's the time between when you got exposed and when you first show symptoms. And that's anywhere from six to 21 days. And most people have absolutely no symptoms during that phase. The prodromal stage typically lasts for two to four days, and that can actually continue for as long as eight days. That has symptoms that are very similar to any typical upper respiratory infection. So there's fever, lack of appetite, malaise, which means you kind of feel blah, 
runny nose, cough, and conjunctivitis. The conjunctivitis severity varies, and it can also be accompanied by something called photophobia or inability to tolerate light. So in this time period, and of course this illness is gonna mostly affect kids, your kid is, just may look like they have a regular kind of normal common cold. The fever, however, usually stays pretty high. It's anywhere from 101 to 103 days at this stage. And the symptoms usually start to intensify before the, the rash appears, and it's that rash that makes you go, aha, this is probably the measles. However, there's something that appears in the mouth, and these are called coplex spots. And these are distinctive small white spots that appear on the inside of the cheek, so inside the mouth. They're typically described as grains of salt on a red background, and they show up about two days before the rash starts, and then they last for one or more day, one or two more days after the rash is noticeable. So for about two to three days, you will notice these if you happen to look, right? So that means your kid has a fever and a cold and you happen to take them to the pediatrician or the family doctor or someone, you know, your nurse practitioner, and that person happens to look in their mouth, not just to look at their throat, but looks in their cheeks and sees the coplic spot. So typically we're not looking for those unless we suspect a measles outbreak in the area. So it's something to think about, but often they get missed. So you've got this period of time where these coplic spots appear, and now during this time, right before the rash appears, and sometimes for as many as two to three days, the fever can get as high as 105 degrees. So, you know, kids are really cooking up at that time. Now, the severity of the fever, the height of the fever, doesn't really correlate with how severe an illness is in kids. So you can have a really low fever, and have like a really severe illness, even like bacterial meningitis or a really high fever, and it can be a viral respiratory infection and not even be the measles. But often we start to get very, very nervous and panicked at this point. And the thing is with measles, if you're noticing these other symptoms, then it's, it's not that common for kids to have 105 degree fevers. It, it definitely can happen. It's something I've seen numerous, countless times. But it's something that might get your kind of your back up. That's definitely a time to check in with your child's practitioner because you're probably going to be nervous and having some reassurance is helpful. I'm going to talk about things like Tylenol and ibuprofen in just a minute. Now, as I mentioned, not everyone has the coplic spots, but you'll often see this high fever. And if you do see the coplic spots, it's a sure sign of the measles. Now, the important thing is that the measles is most contagious during this stage, and it's generally considered to be contagious for four to five days before the onset of the rash appears, and then for about four days or so after the rash appears. So that's the really highly contagious time. So you've gone through this period of time where they have these cold-like symptoms, this fever that sometimes peaks up pretty high, these coplic spots, and that whole thing is lasting for a max of about, well, a minimum of two days and a max of about eight days with, again, an average of two to four days. Now you enter into the exanthem stage, which means the rash stage. The measles rash usually appears about two to four days after the fever begins, and it lasts for about five to six days. Now, this is really interesting. The rash typically begins on the head, and it goes over the face, the forehead, the hairline, the ears, and the neck. 
and then it spreads there to the extremities, so to the arms and the legs over the next three or four days. There's typically, but not 100% as a rule, but usually no rash on the palms of the hands and the soles of the feet with the measles rash. So again, it's a rash that starts after all these symptoms, which is not uncommon with viral rashes. A lot of viral infections, kids get a rash right at the end of the high fever and cold symptoms. But in this case, this is very specific where the rash appears over the head and then extends across the body and no rash typically on palms and soles. But here's something else. Initially, when you press on the area of the rash, it blanches on pressure. So when you press down and lift your finger up, you'll see whiteness. After about three to four days, it turns into what's called a contiguous pattern, meaning it's kind of like the child's body just looks brownish and you don't necessarily see like these individual pinpoint dots of a rash. It's more like a kind of like one fluid area of rash that you see across the body. It's kind of coalesced. The rash can be extremely itchy. It's also likely during this phase that the child can have diarrhea, a cough, a sore throat, and still have really sensitive eyes, extremely sensitive to light, and often will have swollen glands. Now, unlike the fever, the severity of the rash usually does correlate with the severity of the infection. The severity of the infection, though, doesn't mean that your child is going to have complications or not. It just means that it's a much more severe case. So the risk of complications does go up, but the severity, it's like one kid having a really bad cold and another kid having a moderate cold. If the kid with the really bad cold has a great robust immune system, they're unlikely to get pneumonia, whereas another kid maybe has a less robust immune system and maybe does get pneumonia. So, you know, you want to be aware that the severity is significant with a more severe rash, but again, it doesn't mean that your child's more at risk. Typically, the fever peaks about two to three days after the rash appears, and then the fever starts to subside as the rash fades, and that takes up to about a week for the rash to be completely gone. And this is interesting. The rash disappears in the order that it appeared. So you kind of have this very interesting phenomenon of the rash being very specifically patterned with measles. At this time, your child is usually going to start to feel much better, much more comfortable. And this is really important. If fever lasts beyond the third to fourth day after the rash is over, that suggests that there is a measles-associated complication. It's rare. The disease generally runs its course in 10 days. That's why it was called the 10-day measles or the 10-day fever. But if your child's rash starts to go away and the fever's still there, that's a definite indication that you want to bring your child in for a medical appointment. Then if everything's okay and there's no complications with the measles, you know, your kid doesn't have that going on. They just have this 10-day thing and it clears up. Your child enters into what's called the recovery period. Recovery begins after the symptoms have subsided. However, a cough can linger for a couple of weeks, which again is very common with viral infections. A measles cough typically lasts a couple of weeks, but with a lot of viral infections, kids have what's called a post-viral cough, and that can last up to eight weeks, and it doesn't necessarily need any treatment at all. Children need a short period of convalescence after the measles. It's important to allow 
a really full recovery because it can be an exhausting and demanding illness for kids. Measles itself also causes some suppression of the immune system for a short time, and that makes kids more susceptible to other infections during the recovery period. So it's really important to take more care after a measles infection. I'm going to talk about that after I talk about some of the various treatment approaches. But I generally recommend keeping kids home from school and free out of any other activities for at least several days after the symptoms are completely gone and keeping the diet healthy and nourishing but light even in the recovery period. Now, just because measles is going around and your child has a fever and cold symptoms or even a rash doesn't mean he or she has the measles. There are other conditions that can look similar to the measles and make us think it's the measles. Again, the measles has those very specific things like coplic spots and the way the rash appears and disappears. But a lot of kids' respiratory and viral infections, as I mentioned, cause fever and cough and cold and conjunctivitis and eye sensitivity and ear infections and a rash. These include things like common cold or a flu, although it's typically not a rash with a cold or a flu, RSV. All of these can mimic the prodromal stage where you see those cold-like symptoms. But for conditions like roseola, which is HSV6, parvovirus, varicella, hand, foot, and mouth disease, and rubella, kids will get some degree of a rash. A number of infections, for example, scarlet fever from group A strep, meningitis, Rocky Mountain spotted fever, Kawasaki disease, and even reactions to some pharmaceuticals like an antibiotic can cause related symptoms. So, you know, keep in mind that if there's measles going around in your community or you've traveled to an area where measles is endemic and there's an outbreak, then you want to be high on the alert for measles. If you have no other reason to suspect it's measles and you read about measles in the newspaper, make sure that you're looking, you know, your pediatrician or family doctor is looking for these other conditions, but keeping measles in mind because you could be, your child can be the first one in the community who does contract it if they got an exposure. So again, just to reiterate, the course of the measles, the symptoms and the distinguishable rash that's more brown, initially blanches under pressure, that usually differentiates the measles clearly. But if you're not sure, it's important to get a diagnosis. So how is measles diagnosed? Well, if the exposure history and the symptoms strongly suggest the measles, like you went to someone's house, they had the measles, they found out a week later, now your kid has a viral you know, syndrome, cough, fever, et cetera, et cetera, be highly suspicious that it's a measles. Keep your kid home until you see whether a rash develops and your kiddo is feeling better. And then if a rash does develop, then it probably is the measles. Tests can be done to confirm the measles. Blood testing can look for antibodies. A urine and throat swab culture can confirm the presence of the virus. And something called RNA testing, reverse transcriptase PCR, can also confirm the virus through genetic particles of the virus itself. Also, look, I know that many parents prefer to avoid the medical system, especially if your child isn't vaccinated. It can be very scary to go into the system with an unvaccinated child thinking you now have one of these illnesses that somebody's going to start wagging their finger at you. And yes, somebody may wag their finger at you. But I will say, you know, from the perspective of being a physician, but also a mom, and a grandmom, 
it's actually really important to let doctors know or your child's care provider, make sure they do the appropriate reporting if you suspect the measles. And it's ideally really valuable to have it confirmed and reported to the public health department. And the reason I say this is that if nobody's saying when they have the measles, you're not going to know if it's in your community. So you won't be able to protect your child or recognize it if it's going around. It's the only way that the statistics that we need on these diseases can help parents to know when there's an outbreak. And it's the only way to let healthcare providers know when we need to be on the lookout for these things. Historically, measles has been considered a really uncomfortable disease and a nuisance, but much more that than a terrifying illness. But measles can have serious consequences. And so, you know, I don't want to minimize that by any means. It does tend to be more severe with worse outcomes for kids with severe malnourishment in developing countries. And that's where we often see these just devastating cases of measles. And it's particularly prevalent in environments where there's vitamin A deficiency. But kids in the U.S. have been found to be low in many important immune system critical nutrients, including vitamin A. And complications in kids worldwide do occur even when some of those kids don't have known nutritional deficiencies or known immunologic deficiencies. The most common complications associated with measles are diarrhea, which can cause, of course, dehydration and electrolyte imbalances. That occurs in about 6% of cases, though other gastrointestinal complications can arise, even appendicitis. Pneumonia happens in about 8% of cases, and ear infections are really quite common too. Pneumonia is one of the more common severe infections that we see, and it's typically much more in very young children. Kids can have other respiratory complications as well, like bronchitis or something called bronchiolitis, which can actually lead to scarring in the bronchioles, and that can cause kids to get recurrent infections later. It can also cause swelling in the trachea and the glottis, which can make swallowing difficult, even dangerously difficult. And these complications can put children, especially babies, at very high risk. Measles can cause eye complications and also heart problems, including myocarditis and pericarditis. In recent national outbreaks, measles complications required hospitalizations in about 30% of all kids who got the measles. Fortunately, permanent damage was extremely low, and those hospitalizations were mostly for ear infections and respiratory infections. Some doctors automatically prescribe antibiotics to kids with measles to prevent pneumonia and ear infections. And there's actually some evidence to support this. Now, those of you who follow my work know that I am a huge activist for teaching other physicians through training programs I have and through writing about it online and in print magazines that we have to reduce antibiotic overuse. But there is actually a time and a place for antibiotics. Do all children with measles have to get an antibiotic? No, it's not standard of care or a proven optimal approach. But there is enough evidence to support it that if you have a child who does tend to get ear infections or who has had pneumonia in the past or is just really quite sick with the measles, 
it isn't unreasonable at this time to go ahead and do an antibiotic for prevention of secondary infections in kids with measles. Now, severe complications with measles are rare, and the really scary ones are the neurologic complications. These include encephalitis, and it occurs in about one in a thousand measles cases. Now, in the past two decades in the U.S., there have been under or at about a couple of thousand measles cases. So, you know, in two decades, that's not very many cases of encephalitis. Again, it's much more common in developing countries, but it can occur. Now, I'm not saying this to scare you. I'm saying this so that you know what to look out for if your child develops the measles. And the measles isn't going away anytime soon. It does seem to be back. It was considered eradicated in the United States by around 2000, but there has definitely been numerous outbreaks. Some have been imported from other countries. The most recent one that we've seen in 2018-19 appears to have been brought over from people coming from Israel. The one previous to that was people coming from Asia. And so people from highly endemic areas or areas with low vaccination rates bring it over here. And then again, you can get it if you're not vaccinated, but also you can get it if you were but didn't get complete immunity and then it spreads. And the the outbreaks have happened in many, many states. The most recent one started in New York State, for example, and spread in a closed community. It was brought, like I said, from Israel, was in a closed Jewish community that was passed around during one of the Jewish holidays, but has since spread throughout the nation. The one previously started, like I mentioned, at Disney in California, but then spread to numerous states. And some people live in towns or cities or communities that tend to have a very low vaccination rate. And we're seeing that in Southern Oregon, for example, where it's much more prevalent in your community to see higher rates of measles. So it's just something to be aware of. So back to encephalitis, it's inflammation in the brain, and it typically occurs within a few days of the rash starting, though it can occur without an obvious measles rash too. Symptoms include fever, headache, vomiting, stiff neck, irritability, sleepiness, and there can be seizures. About 25% of kids who do develop encephalitis have some lasting neurologic consequences, and it can be fatal in about 15% of children who develop encephalitis. A couple of really severe and quite frightening consequences of measles that are neurologic are two conditions, one called acute disseminated encephalomyelitis, or ADAM, and another called subacute sclerosing panencephalitis, SSPE, Knockwood, as my great-grandma would say, in my practice, I've never seen these. The ADAM is a demyelinating disease, so it actually damages the protective layer that is around, the fatty layer that's around the nerve cells, and so it allows exposure and damage to the nerves. And that occurs also in about one in a thousand measles cases. This one typically begins in the recovery phase of the measles, and it has similar symptoms to encephalitis, but then can progress to paralysis and permanent neurologic consequences, and it's one of the causes of measles-related deaths. The SSPE, nobody knows what causes the atom, and nobody knows what causes the SSPE, 
But the SSPE is an extremely rare but fatal progressive degenerative central nervous system disease that occurs about 7 to 10 years after the natural measles infection. It's thought to be due to a genetic variant of the measles virus that persists in the body and can also occur as a result of the measles vaccination. So either natural measles or measles vaccination can cause it. According to the Centers for Disease Control, the CDC, it's more severe when it's associated with the natural measles infection. Risks of developing it are greater in people who had the measles before age two, but regardless, it appears to be an exceptionally rare condition, although some studies suggest that it may be more common than was previously thought. I want to reiterate, these are rare and the most severe complications of the measles. I also want to emphasize that as a mom who also had to make the vaccinations decision, which I talk about in podcasts I have and you know interviews I've given and in the book I wrote, Vaccinations, A Thoughtful Parent's Guide, I had to make the vaccinations decision in a day and time because my oldest is turning 34 when we only had the whole cell pertussis, not the more the less neurotriggering one that we have now. We only had the live polio virus. And, you know, I know that it can be really, really scary to make this decision. You know, obviously some people think there's no decision to be made at all and you should absolutely not even be questioning vaccinations. And some people think that you should not have to make a decision at all because there's no way you should give vaccinations. And I would say as a parent and as a physician, it's a much more complicated and nuanced conversation than a black and white one. But what I do know is important is that as parents, we are the ones that are going to see our kids when they're sick. We're going to need to be the ones who are aware of the ramifications of our decision. And so, you know, I want you to just know the full picture and I'm not going to sugarcoat it and say, oh yeah, you know, measles, kids always had it and it's always like a mild infection. Yes, generally it is but not all the time. So, you know, just, just, I'm sharing this not to be scary, but just to, you know, as another mom and a mom who's a doctor who takes care of kids, you have to be fully informed to make an informed decision. And that's why I actually called my book Vaccinations, A Thoughtful Parent's Guide. All of that said, there are individuals who are at the greatest risk for developing complications. And that's people who are immunocompromised. So someone who has leukemia or is on chemotherapy or has had an organ transplant and now is on immunosuppressive medications or has an autoimmune disease and is on immunosuppressive medications or has HIV. And of course, these are rare, but if your child has one of these or if there's a family member that has one of these, that's a person at greater risk. Pregnant women who have never been vaccinated are at greater risk. So You know, this is something to think about when you're making the decision about whether to vaccinate your children. When you have daughters, they might grow up to be adult women who choose to have children. And if they're living in a community that often has measles outbreaks or, you know, a measles outbreak can occur anywhere that you might not expect, you want to think through that and have that conversation with her as she gets to childbearing age and does she want to get protected from this which is, you know, a reasonable and important thing to do and an important consideration. And then finally, as I mentioned, people with poor nutritional status, especially vitamin A deficiency. And, you know, 
the Centers for Disease Control does this national study periodically. It's called the NHANES study, N-H-A-N-E-S. And they do random sampling across the United States and what they would consider a typical demographic that includes a broad swath that represents the American public, the U.S. public, several thousand people. And they look at a lot of different parameters. Exposure to environmental toxins and nutritional status are amongst the two that I follow. And the NHANES study has found that in every single state in the United States, most people are nutritionally either insufficient or deficient and not getting particularly the vitamins and minerals they need from fruits and vegetables. And we know that vitamin A deficiency is a specific risk for developing more severe measles with complications. So it's easy to think, oh, well, that's something that happens in really poor countries. It's not going to happen here. But kids can be nutritionally not up to par, particularly if you have very picky eaters, for example, or kids who have a lot of food intolerances and maybe you've taken a lot of foods out of their diet, for example. So, you know, making sure that you at some point had a check of your child's vitamin D level. I just got some labs back today from a very well-off family, very educated family, and their child had some nutritional deficiencies. It just happens. They have plenty of access to food, but the child's vitamin D was quite low. And I see these I see this all the time, vitamin D deficiency, low zinc, low iron, iron deficiency. So, you know, just kind of be aware of that. Now, prior to vaccinations, it was thought that anywhere from 400,000 to 4 million cases of measles occurred every year in the United States with about 450 deaths. So while fatalities in wealthier countries are now rare, and you can see from those statistics, I mean, 450 deaths is a lot and it sounds scary, but with those numbers up out of 4 million, you know, it's not an overwhelming amount. Complications still do occur. So it's good to know what they are so you can be alert to them. And, you know, it's just really important to have respect for this and all illnesses and be prepared, including knowing what to look out for, like the four stages that tell you that the illness is going normally or not so that you know what to do for your child's health and safety. Again, most kids who do get the measles are not going to have these horrible, even terrifying consequences. And some kids are going to have super mild cases, so mild that you're not even sure if it's a cold with a rash or the measles. And most kids are going to get through it just fine, but it can make them really miserable for 10 days. So if your child does get the measles, what are you going to do? Well, the first thing is to clear your calendar and get cozy. Because if your child does catch the measles, you're going to want to clear your calendar for like the next two weeks and completely clear your child's calendar too. More than one kiddo at home, especially if they're not vaccinated, you might be looking at this running through your household for a couple of few weeks to come. So you want to think about that and plan ahead accordingly with your work, whatever support you need, etc. You know, vacation plans, you might need to change them. And then other susceptible family members will likely have been exposed by the time you realize the first person has the measles because you're not going to think, oh, this is the measles. You're going to probably think, oh, this is a cold. So if there's measles going on in your community, you probably want to keep everyone home from the time the first person gets the symptoms to avoid spreading it to other people outside of your home to the best you can. 
And then essentially what you're going to be doing is comfort support for the rash, the aches and pains, the sore eyes, and the other symptoms. So you want to just keep the environment relaxed and comfortable and avoid bright lights if that bothers your kiddo and keep the noise to a minimum. So you want to kind of create a, a quiet, calm, relaxed environment. Now, in my medical practice, I take an integrative approach. And integrative medicine takes into account the severity of the condition, the wellness and resilience of the child immunologically, and all of the best options for treatment. That includes conventional therapies and natural options. And in integrative medicine, we then take all of that into account and apply the safest, most effective strategies to help a person get well. For uncomplicated measles cases, conventional medicine has very little to offer beyond simple comfort support, things like ibuprofen and Tylenol. Though vitamin A therapy, which I'm going to share with you in a minute, is promising. And if there are suspected or known complications, for example, pneumonia, or if your child is really sick and it seems to be a severe case, you see any of the symptoms I talked about of encephalitis or anything like that, Conventional medicine is the absolute necessary choice. Outside of that, for a kind of average measles case, natural therapies can make your child more comfortable while also supporting the immune system and helping to reduce the likelihood of complications. So conventional treatment for uncomplicated cases of the measles consists primarily of keeping your child comfortable, encouraging rest, and providing quiet activities to help pass the time, and plenty of fluids are important because dehydration is one of the biggest risks of fever. And with measles, like I said, fever can be quite high. And a higher fever means you're burning off more fluids. So you run a higher risk of getting dehydrated. Now, medications like ibuprofen and Tylenol actually only lower the temperature about a degree or so. But they can help your child feel much more comfortable with the aches and pains and the discomfort of the viral infection and the discomfort of the high fever. You want to make sure that you never give children who have viral infections, including the measles, any aspirin because that can lead to a really serious problem called Ray's syndrome. So only ibuprofen, only Tylenol. Eye secretions, conjunctivitis, if your child gets conjunctivitis with the measles, should be cleaned with warm water or you can get saline and warm that up that's available at the pharmacy and tepid baths are really comfortable not for the conjunctivitis but just to keep your child physically comfortable not cold baths because those can cause chill and even shock so tepid is a comfortably warm bath if your little one or children have light sensitivity keep the room dimly lit and if you prefer a conventional approach you can get over-the-counter medication or your child's medical provider can make a prescription for something for the itching that you can apply to the skin and you can use a humidifier to help reduce cough and nasal congestion. Now antibiotics as I mentioned aren't effective against the measles because it's a viral infection but some physicians may want to prescribe antibiotics to prevent things like pneumonia and ear infections. That is a conversation that you want to have with your physician and you know, weigh in on it, what you feel comfortable with, whether that may be a wait and watch approach or whether you feel more comfortable with the antibiotic approach. There's really no 
right or wrong answer. As I mentioned, again, it's not standard of care, so you're not necessarily obligated to do it, but it may be something that is appropriate for your child. Now, the World Health Organization recommends that vitamin A be given to all children with acute measles, including in the United States and other countries where it's not usually a serious disease, you still give vitamin A for severe cases. This would always be the case in places like, you know, countries in Africa where measles is endemic and malnutrition is rampant. Giving vitamin A to kids with measles is linked with lower complications and risk of death. Even in the U.S., as I've mentioned, kids have been found to have low vitamin A levels. And kids with these lower vitamin A levels, including in the U.S., have been found to have more severe measles. But because the doses are very high and vitamin A can cause toxicity, I really recommend that you not go out and just get vitamin A from the health food store or the pharmacy, but work with your child's medical provider to prescribe the vitamin A. For the treatment of measles, it's given once a day for two days, and it's at the following doses. And I've got all of this written down for you over at my website at avivaram.com forward slash 101. The number is 101. That's the episode we're in, avivaram.com forward slash 101. So all this information about the consequences, the statistics, and what the doses are for the vitamin A, you'll find over there. So you don't have to worry about memorizing this. You can always, you know, quick link to it or save it as a bookmark or, you know, save it as a PDF. So for babies under six months old, the dose is 50,000 international units. For babies six to 11 months, it's 100,000 international units. And for children over 12 months, it's 200,000 international units. If you live in an area of the country currently experiencing measles outbreak, or you live in a community where measles rates are higher, I recommend in my practice considering the use of daily supplementation for kids with cod liver oil, which is rich in vitamin A, to keep levels boosted. Not at the doses that I just recommended. So you don't want to give as much cod liver oil as going to get to those doses. You just want to give the dose that's recommended for your child's age on the cod liver oil bottle. But give that every day for prevention because that can help keep the vitamin A levels boosted. Again, that's something you can do on your own, but it's not an alternative to that high dose treatment that you would work with your child's doctor to do in the case of a measles infection that you know your child has. When should you seek medical care? Prompt medical care is advisable if your child seems extremely uncomfortable, if you feel like you need assistance handling the situation, and symptoms that absolutely require conventional medical care include a painful cough or difficulty breathing, which can be a complication of pneumonia. If your child has any symptoms that they're having trouble swallowing, like they're gesturing that they're having trouble swallowing, or in younger children, they're drooling a lot, much more than normal, even for a teething baby. If they have a severe headache or a seizure, which could indicate encephalitis or any other behavior that indicates that your child seems seriously ill. Now, no disrespect to any other kinds of medical or healthcare providers, 
This, in my opinion, and I strongly urge you, is not a time to seek alternative medicine advice or to use alternative therapies in lieu of necessary conventional therapies for these symptoms that I'm talking about that suggest that you need to get medical care. And measles complications absolutely call for the help of a medical provider who's licensed to practice pediatrics, a pediatrician, a family medicine doctor, an emergency room doctor, or a nurse practitioner trained in pediatrics and licensed to treat children who is knowledgeable about infectious disease. And the reason I emphasize this is there are practitioners who are doing integrative or functional medicine who maybe, for an example, were a neurologist, an adult neurologist, who are now doing integrative functional pediatrics. Now, I, as a family doctor, am trained in adult and pediatric medicine. So I could do neurology in my practice and I can do pediatrics in my practice, but I know what my limits are. But a lot of people are kind of seeing integrative and functional medicine as a little bit of a wild west. This isn't the time for that person. This is the time for the person who really has been trained. So the providers that I mentioned are the ones that are trained in conventional pediatric medicine. And it's also not a time for unproven therapies. If your child has one of these complications, it's a time for conventional medicine. There's a time and a place. And in some cases, hospitalization may be required. It's okay. It's what you need to do. And as moms and dads, we do what we need to do for our children. And we're mama and daddy bears protecting those kids. And sometimes we feel the best way to do that is to avoid conventional medicine like the plague. And I understand that impulse, but this is not the time for that. This is the time when it really, really is appropriate. So let's say your child just has the run of the mill measles. What do you do? Well, there's no proven diet to help the measles or to make it any easier. But in general, again, along with that restful environment, you know, helping your kiddo pass the time with movies and books and baths and all those things. In general, a light nourishing diet that's easy to digest and easy to swallow is great, particularly if there's a sore throat. Fluids, as I mentioned, are especially important for preventing dehydration. If your child won't take water or tea, which I recommend giving with a straw because often a straw makes it easier to swallow than just trying to sip it down you can use ice pops and you can make your own homemade juice pops or as an added bonus, you can make herbal juice pops or you can get some fruit juice only pops. A typical ice pop has about four ounces of fluid. So they're actually getting a substantial amount. And while you might typically not give anything with fruit juice, this is the time to focus on getting the hydration in. And that's more important than avoiding that juice at this time. That said, it is really important to avoid all added sugar. So you don't want to get sugary ice pops. You want to get real 100% fruit juice. And the reason for that is sugar actually lowers immunity. So you want to avoid all added sugar, including sodas. Typically, I would recommend avoiding bottled juices and all milk. Sometimes I make exception when there's really high fever and you have a little one who is accustomed to drinking juice or won't take any water and only wants, you know, some apple juice or something. In that case, give diluted 50-50 water and juice or herbal tea and juice or even 75% of the other fluid and 25% water. And of course, if you have a breastfeeding baby, keep breastfeeding as much as he or she will. 
as I mentioned, I do recommend the vitamin A. And also this is a time when giving a probiotic and zinc can also be helpful for immune support and for preventing secondary infections like ear infections and respiratory infections. For the dosing on the zinc, you can go to the Office of Dietary Supplements. And if you go there, you'll see a place where you can search search for zinc, and then you'll see a practitioner or professional review of zinc, and you'll see one for consumers. You can feel free to look at either one. Those will have the age-appropriate and weight-appropriate doses. So for natural remedies, you know, my preference is to try to go for natural supportive measures whenever you can before turning to Tylenol and ibuprofen, if possible. Though, again, if your child is extremely uncomfortable, those medications are reasonable for the peak fever and the peak discomfort days. But I really urge you to not use them for more than two to three days in a row because usually two to three days in a row, you don't see complications with those medications. But when it starts to get longer than that, sometimes you can see complications from those medications. So the two to three days, Tylenol or ibuprofen or alternating is reasonable if your child's really uncomfortable. The remedies that I'm about to share with you can also be really helpful. Again, they're not a substitute for conventional medicine in severe cases or cases with complications, but in kind of -of run-of-the-mill measles and also in any of the other conditions that I'm about to talk about, which are symptoms of measles, these natural therapies have been shown to be helpful. Earache oil, for example, which I'm going to tell you about, has been shown in studies to be helpful in reducing symptoms and preventing the need for antibiotics with ear otitis media. Echinacea has been shown to be helpful in preventing recurrent infections and helping with respiratory infections. And a number of herbs have been helpful for fever symptoms, cough, and tummy discomforts. All of the remedies I'm about to talk about, you can find the recipes for and the information to how to use them and even prepare them at home in my free ebook, which is over at my website at avivaram.com. It's called Herbs for Kids, and it's totally free. It's a really comprehensive ebook. And then also my book, which is now a classic, Vaccinations, A Thoughtful Parent's Guide, has all of the remedies that I talk about specifically in that book for childhood preventable illnesses, but you can get a lot of that without getting the vaccinations book. I highly encourage you to get that book because I still think it's the most thoughtful and rational book on the market. I wrote it because as a busy midwife, naturally so many of my families who had their babies at home had lots of questions about vaccinations. So instead of saying the same thing over and over and over and over and over, you know, many times a month or a year, I put it all down on paper and that got me to do a lot of research on the history of vaccinations, on the status of vaccinations, safety. A lot of the vaccinations have changed in the sense that when I wrote the book, thimerosal was still in most of the vaccines, that mercury additive, the preservative, it's out of almost all of the vaccines now, except for the multivial flu vaccine. Some of the vaccinations that are on the market now weren't then. There are many more vaccines given even now, many more doses now. And yeah, there have been some changes. In fact, when I wrote that book, the rates of autism were about 10 times less than what they are currently. And so I highly recommend it still because it really gives you an important history 
of where we are with vaccinations. It gives you some of the true information on what you want to know about the politics of vaccination history in terms of pharmaceutical companies being indemnified against lawsuits. But also, again, I'm not opposed to appropriate use of vaccination. So you'll really get a sense of the full story without it being polarized one way or the other, if that's what you want, and some really good algorithms that you can think through to help you make the best decision for your child. There are a few things that are outdated in there. This was 2000, so you'll see some things have changed, but I definitely strongly recommend it. So what are we going to do with kiddos when they got various symptoms? Well, the first most common symptom that you're going to see is fever. And while I'm not going to go into detail about fever, I do have a podcast called Who's Afraid of Fever and a blog. So I highly encourage you to go to those. I'll link those below the copy content transcript on the page over at my website, avivaram.com forward slash 101 for this episode. And you know it's really important to understand that fever is your child's body doing the work to fight the infection, and it's not the disease in and of itself. And so we want to reduce fever enough to keep your child comfortable, but not ameliorate the fever completely. But really, there's nothing that's going to do that anyway. So I like fever herbs because they really are much more focused on cooling down the child just a little, little bit but more helping with the aches, the pains, the headaches, the tummy discomfort, etc. So one of the teas I like to make and the recipes over at the blog page accompanying this podcast is combining lemon balm, catnip, chamomile, and spearmint. And you can give that to sip through the day. You can also make it into ice pops and I give you a resource on where to get the best organic bulk herbs that I also use and recommend my patients and students purchase from. I don't have a financial affiliation with Mountain Rose, but they're great. Alternatively, instead of tea, companies like Herb Farm and Gaia Herbs have terrific glycerin-based tinctures. So they don't have alcohol in them and they have bottles that are specifically marked for children's dosing. And these are really easy to administer. The glycerin makes them very tasty. But for full disclosure, I do want you to know that I do have a consulting relationship with Herb Farm. So they pay me to work with them to consult around formulations and so forth. And they don't pay me to tell you about their product. They just pay me to consult. But that is the brand that I have used predominantly for my own kids and my own family for 35 years. That's how I ended up in the consulting relationship with them about five years ago. For cough, buckwheat honey taken by the teaspoon has been shown to be one of the most effective non-pharmaceutical cough remedies that we have. However, it's not safe for children under one year old, but for kids over one year, a teaspoon of honey at bedtime can help them sleep better through the night, which also means you're going to get some sleep. And if they wake up, you can give them another teaspoon of it. There are also some wonderful herbs like marshmallow root, licorice root, thyme, and aniseed, wild cherry bark, and slippery elm bark that can be made into a wonderful cough syrup remedy that you can make with honey so you're getting the double benefit or without honey for younger babies. And again, I talk about all of those in my free ebook for skincare for that really horribly itchy rash. One of my sort of funkier home remedies is to prepare an oatmeal bath by taking a handful of rolled oats, the same kind that you make oatmeal out of, but take a big handful of the raw oats, put them in a clean cotton sock, 
and then tie the sock closed with a rubber band. Then you start to fill up a warm bathtub for your kiddo to get in, and you take the sock and you squeeze the sock underwater until the oats start to release a milky liquid. That's actually oat milk. And rub that all over your child's skin. You can just rub the sock all over. So use a soft sock. And if your kid is like over two, they might really enjoy just doing that themselves. And you can do that two, three times a day. There's no reason you can't do that. It's soothing and really relieves the itching for a while. Herbs, including calendula, licorice root, and marshmallow root, can also be used topically in washes. So you make a tea and you use a rinse or you can put them in the bath compresses and soothing balms like a salve that you make to soothe the skin. For sore eyes, which are definitely a common symptom of measles, chamomile compresses can be used. So you can actually buy chamomile tea bags as long as they don't have any other herbs in them or any flavoring in them. Make the tea as if you're just making a tiny, tiny amount of tea. So like Put the tea bags into a cup, fill the cup with maybe like an eighth of a cup of boiling water. Let that come to room temperature because more cool is going to feel good. And then just squeeze them out so they're not dripping wet and have your child close his or her eyes. Kids under two probably won't like doing this. You can do it while they're asleep. And for older kids, just have them close their eyes. They might really enjoy that soothing comfort. And then the other thing is using a small silk pillow that's filled with flax seeds. You can get those at, well, you know, lots and lots of places on Amazon or local health food store. And that can be really soothing for kids, especially older kids when their eyes are closed. Now, with the chamomile compresses or the eye pillow, conjunctivitis is wicked contagious. So you don't want to reuse the chamomile compresses. And with the eye pillow, I wouldn't use that if there's active conjunctivitis because then the pillow is going to get infected and that can infect other people or perpetuate the infection. So that's if there's no conjunctivitis. If there's conjunctivitis, you can also use the chamomile compresses and they're incredibly soothing. In that case, I usually add a quarter teaspoon of golden seal to that boiling water when I'm making the chamomile tea compresses to add some antibacterial action. And then I do the same thing. I squeeze it out, let it come to room temperature so it's nice and cool, and put it against the eyes. The only thing that you want to be careful of is that golden seal stains things yellow permanently, just the way turmeric does. I talk a lot more about how to do this in my ebook. And of course, I forgot to mention my book, Naturally Healthy Babies and Children, which I wrote as a young mama before I was a medical doctor but still stand by the same remedies. So I use them in my medical practice to this day. If you're breastfeeding, breast milk is also really fabulous remedy for conjunctivitis. You want to make sure you know how to apply it into the eyes so that you're not spreading conjunctivitis from one eye to the other. So that's where the ebook or Naturally Healthy Babies and Children is going to come in handy. For sore throat, for older kids who are able to gargle, a saltwater gargle is one of the best remedies we have for sore throat. And you take a quarter teaspoon of sea salt. It can be Himalayan salt as well. And then you put that in a quarter cup of warm, not so hot that it's too hot, but warm, quite warm. And then they gargle. And they can do that every couple of hours for sore throat. Some companies like Herb Farm and Gaia Herbs and others sell sage sore throat spray. Sage is also healing for a sore throat. I'm not going to get into which of these, like any of the topical things 
you can use while you're pregnant. Sage is one herb that you can't use while you're pregnant, even the throat spray. So I just want to mention that just in case you happen to be pregnant and have a little scratchy throat, you know, your kid is sick, don't use the throat spray. Now for earaches and even mild ear infection, otitis media, garlic mullen earache drops, and what are typically called herbal earache drops, which may have St. John's wort in them in addition to the garlic and mullen, have been found to be very effective for kids' middle ear infections. They can be purchased online. The companies I've mentioned have them, including Mountain Rose Herbs, or you can make your own at home with the recipe in the free ebook. So it's all there for you. And in the ebook, I talk about precautions like don't use it if there's anything draining out of the ear, any suspicion of a ruptured membrane. So, all right, you have gotten your child through the measles or through another common childhood infection, like a cold or an upper respiratory infection, using these great remedies. Hopefully, if your family has anyone who gets the measles, it's a quick here and gone thing without much fuss. And in otherwise healthy kids, this is usually the case. And then the good news is that typically measles not only confers lifetime immunity against the virus, Women who had natural measles infections as kids may pass on protective immune antibodies to their babies when they have kids that provides her baby with some level of natural immunity for the measles for up to two years after the baby's born. So that's kind of cool, actually. In general, after any illness, we tend to need to hurry to get back to work and get our kids back to school. My great-grandma on my mom's side was a Hungarian herbalist And I remember her advice and the admonition that she would give to my mom in her Hungarian accent, which was, let the kids stay home after an illness for one day, for every day they had a fever. So if the kid had a fever for five days, my great-grandma was like, keep them home for five days after that to prevent relapse or recurrence or a new infection from taking hold. And again, remember with measles, that's especially common because of that mild immunosuppression. So look, you know, your kids had an infection for 10 days. It might not be realistic to stay home for 10 days more, taking it easy. But keeping the immune system supported is really wise and having at least three or four days at home for convalescence, which is kind of an art that we've lost in our culture, is really important. It really can help them recover much more completely. Many of you have probably experienced your kids getting over a cold or a cough or an ear infection just to have a new one on the heels of it that then passes through your household again. So ideally, a restful few days post-illness and easing back into things, giving a supportive nourishing diet, remedies like echinacea and zinc and vitamin C and even a probiotic can be really helpful for a week or so and can in the long run prevent you from missing more work and your child from missing more school. And, you know, just... It has really been my lifelong joy to support families in knowing how to raise naturally healthy babies and children. My personal deep belief and my approach to my own family has been that natural approaches work incredible wonders. It's also important not to throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak. And to do that, we have to be knowledgeable of the whole story and not just the part that we want to hear, right? Just that, oh, it's easy, it's natural, kids get it, and it's no problem. No, I hope this has been really, really helpful for you. If it has, that you'll share it with a friend, that it gives you great tools, not only to be prepared in the advent that there would ever be a measles outbreak in your community, 
but to give you a sense of approaching your child's health in a really integrative way, which means all the options are on the table and picking the best one for the situation, for your unique child's needs that supports your child's optimal health. And just to let you know, if you really want to be very prepared and recognize common symptoms and conditions in your child, both the common things like ear infections, colds, etc., and also some of these conditions that we try to prevent with vaccinations, if you choose vaccinations, certainly public health community tries to prevent them that way. But with a non-judgmental approach, I talk more about some of these vaccine-preventable illnesses, as they're called, in my children's course, Healthy All Year. So if you really want to kind of take the next step, this online course is available. You can find it over on my website. I just want you to know about it. I'm not trying to pitch it to you, but I created it. It's like 14 hours, I think, with me of quick videos that tell you what to look out for, for pretty much every common child, you know, everything from like earaches to colds to coughs to rashes, the whole gamut of it, when to see a doctor. It's all like tons of remedies, videos, and I think you'll really love it. So I just want you to know it's out there. I created it so that you would have the very same information that I learned when my children were little. My kids are now 34, 31, 27, and 25, and I have two grandkids. And again, this has been my lifelong joy. So it's my pleasure to pass it on to you. And I look forward to seeing you in the next episode of Natural MD Radio. Remember all the resources and the content that I shared with you here today is over at avivaram.com forward slash 101. It's not meant to replace the care of your child's medical care provider, but to provide you with some extra information and maybe even information that you can share with your child's care provider who might not know this. So see you next time and be well. Hope you enjoyed this episode of Natural MD Radio. If you did, please go to avivaram.com and join the conversation about the show on my blog. And while you're there, be sure to sign up for my newsletter. It's free and it's jam-packed with powerful tips to help you take back your health naturally. That's avivaram.com. Take care and see you next time. <laughs>